Section 17 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 5, Florence 1, Savonarola by E. Armstrong, Part 2. The next task was the reform of the Constitution. The palace bell summoned a parlamento, a mass meeting of the people, to the great piazza, and the signoria, from its platform, proposed a balia, or provisional government. The Medician institutions, the councils of the hundred and of the seventy, and the otto di pratica, a standing committee for state affairs, which had already been suspended, were now abolished, while the members of the Otto de Balia, the Ministry of Justice, were deposed. A board of twenty was nominated to select the Signoria for one whole year. Under the title of the Ten of War, a commission was to be appointed for the subjection of Pisa. Within the year, a register was to be drawn up of all citizens qualified for office, and at its expiration, the popular traditional practice of appointing to all magistracies by lot should be resumed. This provisional government was virtually the substitution of oligarchy for monarchy. A group of aristocrats now held the power which Lorenzo de' Medici had striven to secure. Nevertheless, the proposal was passed by acclamation in the Parlamento and confirmed by the two older councils of the people and the commune. It was impossible that such a piece of patchwork should stand the wear and tear of a restless people. The councils of the hundred and of the seventy and the otto di pratica had been successively introduced, not merely for family or party purposes, but to strengthen administrative efficiency. The old municipal constitution was unequal to the needs of an expanding territory and of complicated international relations. This had been the justification for the rule of a family, or of groups of families who had no official place in the Constitution, of the parte guelfa, the albizzi, the medici. All the really operative elements in the state, whether official or non-official, were now removed. The normal Constitution would be worked by twenty individuals with no coherence, and not much experience, divided by family and personal rivalries. Oligarchies, wrote Aristotle, fall from internal divisions, and, almost invariably, one section will appeal to the people for support against its fellows. It was certain from the first that this would happen at Florence, where, in spite of monarchy or oligarchy, there was a democratic atmosphere, and where, in the absence of soldiers or efficient police, public opinion could at any crisis find expression. Even before Piero's fall, some of the aristocracy had paid their addresses to the people, and now the populace was in a dangerous state. Unsatisfied with fire and plunder, it pleaded for blood. None had been let in Florence since the short fever of the Pazzi plot. 
the oligarchs sacrificed one of the medician government officials antonio de bernardo who was hanged from a window above the great piazza his hands were clean but his origin low his manners rough and his office that of the public debt the most unpopular in florence others were condemned to imprisonment for life to flatter the ingrained love of equality the twenty nominated insignificant persons to the chief magistracy the gonfalonierate of justice so again men of no repute were sent on important embassies ludovico il moro jibed at the diplomatic methods of the new republic but all this was not enough the oligarchs must satisfy not only the populace but each other which was indeed impossible one of the cleverest the most experienced the most ambitious aristocrats paolo antonio soderini had been excluded from the twenty probably by the influence of his rival piero caponi on the death of lorenzo de medici he had tentatively resisted the advance of the monarchy but when young piero showed his teeth he shrank from the encounter he now intrigued for the fall of the twenty and it was no difficult task to make the provisional government impossible soderini had just returned from an embassy to venice it was natural that he should sing the praises of her constitution the cry caught up in the street was echoed from the pulpit soderini it is said first persuaded savonarola to advocate a popular government on the venetian model it need not be assumed that soderini was a hypocrite he was virtuous and serious but virtue and sobriety cast fantastic shadows which assume the forms of ambition and intrigue during and after the french occupation savonarola had been untiring in preaching for the poor especially for those who were ashamed to confess their poverty he implored the idling artisans to return to work unity peace and mercy were his perpetual theme the people however threatened to extend their vengeance from the financial officials to all adherents of the medici the more moderate aristocrats became alarmed already exiles were returning the victims of themselves or of their fathers and titles to property confiscated in the past were endangered the exiles might well bid for popular support it was felt that the new oligarchy the whites must stand by the greys bigi the families who still had medician proclivities but these oligarchs could not stay the flood of popular hatred if they stemmed it they would be swept away in their turn their leader piero caponi turned for aid to savonarola and the friar succeeded where others must have failed of all his claims to the gratitude of his adopted city this is the strongest savonarola now fairly entered into politics he had striven as a ferrarese he declared to have nothing to do with the florentine state but god had warned him that he must not shrink for his mission was the creation of the spiritual life and this must have a solid material edifice wherein to dwell to his political sermons he summoned the magistrates admitting none but men 
he sketched not only the form of the new constitution, but the main lines of legislation, ethical and economic. Monarchy, he admitted, might be the ideal government, but it was unsuited for people of temperate climates, who had at once too much blood and too much cleverness to bear a king, unsuited above all to high-spirited and subtle Florentines, for whom the Venetian popular government was the natural type. He suggested that the citizens should gather under their sixteen companies, Gonfaloni, that each company should draft a scheme, that of these the sixteen gonfaloniers should select four, and from them the signoria should choose the best. This, he assured his congregation, would be after the Venetian model. In official circles, there was resistance, but popular opinion was overwhelming. The aristocrats had overthrown the Medici, but the people claimed the spoils. After long debate, the several magistracies, the sixteen gonfaloniers, the twelve buonwomini, the twenty, the eight, and the ten of war each presented constitutions, and of these that of the ten, to which Soderini belonged, was chosen. The old councils of people and commune were replaced by a grand council, which became the sovereign authority of the state. Membership was confined to those who had at any time been drawn for the three chief offices, the Signoria, the Twelve, and the Sixteen, or whose ancestors within three generations had been so drawn. The age limit was twenty-nine, and no one could be a councillor who had not paid his taxes. A small number of citizens, otherwise qualified, above the age of twenty-four, was admitted, and in each year twenty-eight additional members, unqualified by office, might be elected. Few of these, however, obtained the requisite majority of two-thirds of the votes. The chief function of the council was electoral. Electors, drawn by lot, nominated candidates for the more important offices, and of those who secured an absolute majority of votes, he who polled the highest number was elected. For the minor offices, members of the council were drawn by lot. The council chose a senate of eighty members, who sat for six months but were re-eligible. Their duty was to advise the signoria and to appoint ambassadors and commissioners with the army. The executive remained unchanged. At the head was the signoria, the gonfalonier of justice, and the eight priors, holding office for two months. Its consultations were aided by the college, the twelve, and the sixteen. The ten of war and the eight of balia continued to exist. Every legislative proposal, every money bill, every question of peace and war was initiated in the signoria, passed through the college, to the senate, and received completion in the council. This was expected to number about 3,000 members, and, until a large hall in the palace could be built, it was divided into three sections which sat in turn. This was a bold constitutional experiment, the boldest that had yet been tried at Florence. 
It was not exactly the transplantation of an exotic constitution, which had matured under different conditions of soil and climate, but rather an attempt to hybridize the Florentine executive with the Venetian elective system. To all Italian statesmen, it seemed clear that Venice possessed the ideal constitution, but the essence of this perfection was not so obvious. The academic explanation was that it was mixed, combining the merits of monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. Consequently, Venice could serve as a model to artists of very different schools. Lorenzo de' Medici, convinced of the weakness of the Florentine system for diplomacy and war, had, in creating the Seventy and the Committee of Eight, looked to the Senate and the Ten, which were essentially the motive powers of the Venetian constitution. His last political act, the creation of a balia of seventeen, was probably another adaptation of the Venetian ten, applied to the purposes most essential to Medician power, elections and finance. It is at least a curious coincidence that the so-called ten consisted really of seventeen members. His intention is believed to have been that he should be elected life gonfalonier, or doge. This would have legalized his irregular position and given him permanent influence in every department. Lorenzo, however, while making a selection from both the aristocratic and monarchical elements of his model, left out of sight its broad popular basis. At Venice, the Grand Council was eminently the elective body, and the electors could tolerate the supremacy of their representatives. Lorenzo had entrusted elective functions above all to oligarchical councils and committees. The cry of the Florentines now was people and liberty. Overlooking, therefore, the administrative excellence of Venice, they gave exclusive attention to the Grand Council, which had been, indeed, rather the declining partner in the Venetian constitution. They believed, not unnaturally, that by directly interesting a large number of citizens in the Constitution, they would shake off once for all the extra-legal influences, which had for so long dominated the elections, and through them the administration. Thus would cease the curious dualism between the real and the apparent government, the cause of some oppression, and much heart-burning. There was, however, this great difference, that at Florence, every legislative question and every important question of policy ultimately came before the council, whereas at Venice, almost all received their decision in the Senate. Thus, while at Venice, if the ten be momentarily set aside, the Senate was the determining body. At Florence, it exercised little weight in the fortunes of the coming years and was, indeed, overshadowed by the influence of the pratica, an excrescence on the constitution of which more anon. It is clear from this alone that in diplomacy and war, when speed, secrecy, and trained experience were required, Florence would be at a disadvantage. At Venice again, the executive was more highly developed. There was greater differentiation. Each, for instance, of the Savi da Terraferma had his own department, 
while the functions of the board differed from those of the Savi da Mar. At Florence, the Signoria, with its consultative associates, the Twelve and the Sixteen, had undergone no process of evolution. Even between the Signoria and the two chief executive committees, the Ten and the Eight, there was no clear demarcation. Conflicts of authority might and did arise. Moreover, Florence had no trained pilot. Very ordinary seamen took their place on the bridge almost in turn. The Venetian doge is traditionally called a figurehead, but this metaphor gives a false impression of his relation to the ship of state. He was, it is true, hemmed in by every precaution against absolutism, but he was usually elected as a citizen of high position and long experience. Chosen for life, he sat among officials, most of whom were elected for short terms. He was in the closest touch with every branch of the administration. Nor did his fortunes depend on the popularity of his opinions. His influence might not be obvious, but it was all-pervading. Every great movement in Venetian policy will be found to associate itself with the personality of a doge. How different was the position of a Florentine gonfalonier of justice elected for two months and welcomed by the citizens in proportion to his insignificance? Finally, at Florence, there was no attempt as yet to emulate the Venetian judicial system with its three courts of forty citizens and its admirable supervision of local justice by itinerary commissions from the capital. It was this organization partly representative and popular, partly expert, which made Venetian justice acceptable to the mainland cities and respected at home. Florence was left with her old faulty system, at once weak, cruel, and partial, inspiring neither affection nor respect. The controlling dynastic power was now withdrawn, which had at least striven to give some efficiency and regularity to justice. This was certain to become the sport of the political passions of the moment. In spite of these defects, the new constitution was popular, for it gave a constant interest in government to a larger number than had previously been the case. In this sense it may be termed democratic. It is frequently called the Florentine democracy, even by those who stigmatize its Venetian model as a narrow oligarchy. This is so far correct, that the more democratic features of the model had been adopted, while the Florentine executive retained the democratic principle of rapid rotation, of ruling and being ruled in turn. The term nobility, as applied to the ruling class at Venice, created some little difficulty. It was explained that this was a misnomer, that it implied only an official distinction involving no personal rights over other men. Soderini indeed declared that as many possessed citizenship at Venice as were fit to enjoy it at Florence. The origin of the two systems was more alike than the Florentines probably knew. At the date of the closing of the Grand Council at Venice, 1296, a reform of the Constitution had become imperative, and then as at Florence in 1494, 
the alternative lay between an oligarchy and a more popular form, between a group of families and a considerable section of the citizens. In both cases, it was decided in favor of the latter. In both, the new citizenship had an official basis, for at Venice, membership of the old council during several generations corresponded to the Florentine qualification of past office in the three greater magistracies. In both, all classes which had not previously enjoyed power were, subject to insignificant exceptions, permanently excluded. There was, however, this important difference, that in Florence the noble houses had, since the ordinances of justice, been disfranchised. The Medici had done much to break down this antiquated distinction, but many families still remained almost outside the state, some of them enjoying great social and, indirectly, no little political influence. Hitherto, there had been possibilities of recovering qualification through membership of the arts. This avenue was now closed. Hitherto, they could at all events belong to the council of the commune. This council was now abolished. Thus, a wealthy and influential class was placed in inevitable opposition towards the new government. If the highest class lost by the constitutional change, the lower classes did not gain. There was no extension of the franchise in the modern sense. No new class obtained a share in government. Citizenship still depended on membership of the arti, the greater or the less. In each magistracy, the former were represented in the proportion of three to one. Even in the council, a little consideration will show that the same proportion must have been approximately maintained unless it be urged that three generations of a poorer class will produce more children than three of a richer. Government was left, as before, in the hands of the upper-middle classes with a preponderance in favor of the uppermost. The name of Savonarola has been indissolubly connected with this constitution. He did not probably first propose it, nor had he, as far as is known, any share in drafting its actual provisions. But, unquestionably, he created an overpowering public feeling in its favor. Henceforth he regarded the Grand Council as his offspring, whose life it was his most solemn duty to safeguard. His influence, too, induced the Twenty to resign before their term of office had expired, and from June 10, 1495, the council assumed full sovereign authority. Even before this date, his sermons had directly affected legislation. The first act carried by the council was an amnesty for the past. This was followed by a measure granting an appeal to the council to any citizen qualified for office who, for a political offense, had been sentenced by a vote of two-thirds of the signoria or the eight. This question of appeal from the six beans was the first which seriously agitated the new republic and ultimately gravely affected Savonarola and his party. The signoria and the eight possessed by law an unlimited power of punishment. 
This they were usually too timid to exercise on their own responsibility, but they might easily be made the tools of a dominant faction for party purposes. Political opponents might be proscribed under legal forms without the chances afforded by delay or by an appeal to popular feeling. Hence, this appeal to the council was proposed and was warmly debated in that peculiar Florentine institution termed a pratica. The pratica was no formal element in the constitution, new or old, and yet so strong were its traditions that, when, in later years, the gonfalonier Piero Soderini preferred to consult the regular magistracies, the innovation was almost regarded as unconstitutional. The upper magistracies and committees sometimes composed the pratica, but, on important occasions, the executive added a considerable number of leading citizens and legal luminaries. The timid executive thus widened the area of responsibility and obtained a preliminary test of the drift of public opinion. A pratica was the only assembly in which questions were freely debated. Hence, it somewhat threw into the shade not only the eighty, but the council itself. In Savonarola's career, on the three most critical occasions, the interest centers in the debates of the pratica. The final vote in favor of appeal was large both in the eighty and the council, but during the discussion, the result had seemed very doubtful. The aristocrats, who had hitherto manipulated the signoria, could show that such a measure would still further weaken the already feeble executive. A section of them had, however, become aware that henceforth the executive would be wielded by the people, and that, after the Medician leaders, the prominent oligarchs might be the victims of a sudden sentence. Delay would be in favor of men of position, who in the council would not be without adherence. On the other hand, those who were irreconcilable with the Medici urged that the executive was the sword of the people, and that to blunt its edge was to weaken the people's power. Savonarola had previously proposed an appeal, not to the council, but to a smaller body. He seems, however, to have attributed no importance to the distinction and preached earnestly in favor of the government proposal. Against the Dominican, his opponents set up the eloquent Franciscan Fra Domenico da Ponzo, and the populace flocked from San Marco to Santa Croce and back again to be taught its politics from the pulpit. The triumph of the government was complete, and the law was carried, Time only could show whether, amid party passions, it would be observed. Savonarola's share in this law has recently been denied, but contemporary friends and enemies ascribed to him its initiation and success. His panegyrists have no need to be ashamed of a measure which rightly gave the power of pardon to the sovereign authority. In a democracy, wrote Aristotle, the people should have the power of pardoning, but not of condemning. Savonarola's reputation was afterwards injured, not by the law of appeal, but by the failure of his party to observe it. 
in a kindred proposal to pair the clause of the executive, Savonarola had a yet more direct share. From the pulpit of San Marco was uttered the death warrant of the primeval Florentine assembly, the Parlamento. This was a curious survival of the old municipal life of a comparatively small city, in which the people at large was the ultimate resort on any change of government. Under altered conditions, it was doubtless an abuse. Each dominant party could induce the Signoria, which was its nominee, to summon a parliament, and there propose measures of greater or less importance, with the purpose of prolonging or enhancing its own authority. By this simple expedient, the Constitution was more than once suspended. Savonarola saw that a single signoria, with an aristocratic or Medician majority, might, through such a plebiscite, overthrow in an hour the fabric of the new republic. On no political subject was his language more intemperate. There was now, he cried, no need of parliaments. The sovereignty of the people was vested in the council, which could make every law that the people could desire. Parliament was the robbery of the people's power. He warned his congregation, if ever the bell of the palazzo rang for Parliament, to hack to pieces every prior that stepped upon the platform. The gonfaloniers of the companies must swear that on the first stroke of the bell they would sack the prior's houses, and of each house sacked, the gonfalonier and his company should divide the spoils. Within sixteen days of Savonarola's sermon, this ferocious proposal, though modified in its penal details, became law. Thus the middle classes deprived the lower of even the semblance of a share in government. The parliament, which abolished the Medici regime, had shouted away its own existence. Hitherto, every insignificant balia had required the assent of this popular assembly, but the sweeping change which established the new republic had never received its sanction. The time might come when even this faint echo of the people's voice might be regretted. In these two deliberate attempts to weaken the executive, Savonarola was probably less influenced by theoretic democratic considerations than by feverish anxiety to fend off the immediate danger, a recrudescence of party strife and proscription executed under legal forms. But his dislike of the rabble as a political power was genuine. He had all an Italian's respect for family. He dwelt with complacency on the fact that many of his novices were scions of the best Florentine houses. He knew, or soon learned to know, the defects of a weak executive. During his trial, he confessed his wish to imitate yet further the Venetian constitution by the appointment of a doge, a gonfalonier for life. After his death, this very method was adopted from sheer despair at the incompetence of the republican administration. So again, he opposed the most durable democratic principle which flattered Florentine love of equality, election by lot. When a combination of aristocrats who wished to discredit the council and of extreme men 
who would carry democratic principles to their logical conclusions, strove to eliminate nomination and to substitute a bare for an absolute majority, Savonarola preached against this enfeeblement of administrative efficiency. Savonarola taught his congregation that every vote entailed a solemn responsibility. He amplified San Bernardino's warning that a single bean wrongly given might prove the ruin of the state. And the elector, he preached, must have in view the glory of God, the welfare of the community, the honor of the state. He ought not to nominate a candidate from private motives, nor reject one who may have wronged him. A candidate should be both good and wise, but if the choice lie between a wise man and one who is good but foolish, the interest of the state required the former. No man should be elected to an office by way of charity. His poverty must not be relieved to the detriment of the public service. The elector should not from temper or persuasion vote against a candidate or throw his nomination paper on the ground, nor yet support any who had canvassed him, nor ever give a party vote. In cases of reasonable doubt, let the elector pray, and then, without looking, give the black bean or the white, for God would guide his hand. This last characteristic reference to divine guidance was followed by a remarkable instance of reliance upon miracle. There were rumors that the new great hall of council was unsafe, and nervous electors feared to take their seats. Let them not fear, exclaimed the preacher, for if the building were not sound, God would hold it up. On the expulsion of the Medici, their financial system, as well as their constitution, was cast into the melting pot. The progressive tax on all forms of income, which had been their favorite expedient, shared in their unpopularity. Savonarola was prepared not only with a constitution, but a budget. He preached that direct taxation should be limited to a tenth on immovables, and that this should be levied once only in the year. It was argued that such a tax was not liable to the arbitrary assessment, which had been the curse of Florentine finance. A tax on land was easy to collect, and had solid security behind it. It entailed no inquisitorial prying into credit. It suffered merchant and artisan to ply unhindered those occupations which made the wealth of Florence. For she was poor in land, but rich in commerce. The proposal became law, and a committee of sixteen was elected to assess all landed property in Florence and its territory. Apart from its being limited to immovables, the new tax differed from its predecessors in being regarded technically as a gift and not as a loan. Extraordinary taxes had previously been credited to the taxpayer in the state debt and nominally bore interest. The new tax was subject to no repayment. For this suggestion, Savonarola has won the fame of a great financier, and it is true that the tenth had a long life, when once its delicate youth was past, for it formed the basis of taxation under the Medici Grand Dukes. Yet the proposal was neither wise nor novel. 
taxes had long been levied on revenue from land, and the limitation was but a return to earlier practice. The wealth of Florence, the source of luxurious expenditure, was commerce. The landed classes might live in easy circumstances, but not in state. Yet commerce was now exempt. The arbitrary taxation of individuals was remedied by shifting it to the shoulders of a class. The new tax fell hardly on the nobles who were unrepresented in the state. It was therefore popular with the ruling middle classes who were jealous of their social influence. The French were still in Italy, while Pisa was in full revolt, and Florentine territory exposed to depredation. Yet the source of income taxed was that which was least protected. The lower classes would necessarily feel the pinch, for the impost would inevitably, in spite of state regulation, raise the price of grain and oil and wine. Savonarola's financial scheme was pre-doomed to failure, for it was totally inadequate to its purpose. Even the assessment was not completed until the year of his death, and then only for the inhabitants of Florence. The Republic, from the first, resorted to the old tainted sources of supply, forced loans from richer or less popular citizens, it still, as was said of Cosimo de' Medici, used the taxes instead of the dagger. The arbitrio, an impost on the profits of trades and professions, reappeared, and the duties on articles of consumption rose and rose again. Even before Savonarola's death, it was proposed to restore the progressive tax, which could be levied several times within the year. The white farthings, the withdrawal of which had been the first concession to the populace, were reissued. The finances were incompetently and extravagantly administered. There was no permanent control, no subordination of private to public interests. Under the Medici, a limited number had benefited from corruption. Under the Republic, each fresh group which came into momentary power felt bound to gratify its adherents by the superfluous creation of commissaries and envoys. It became difficult to pass money bills through the council, and the consequent delay came to cost the state a hundred times the sum originally needed. So entire was the decay of the Florentine marine that, towards the close of the Pisan War, Florence was reduced to hiring a Genoese pirate with a brigantine or two to blockade the outlets of the Arno. The defects of Florentine justice did not escape Savonarola's ken. His recommendation that the chief commercial court, the Mercatanzia, should be reformed by means of a representative committee was carried out as far as statute went. Politicians, however, continued to manipulate the court through the agency of its permanent secretary, and this afterwards brought about a split in the Liberal Party, even as it was alleged to have caused the original breach between Medici and Albizzi. The friar also proposed a new criminal court, which he called Ruota, 
composed of citizens sufficiently wealthy and well-paid to stand above fear or favor. Eruota was, after his death, established, but bore no resemblance except in name to his proposal, which was undoubtedly borrowed from the admirable Venetian courts named Quarantie. When, still later, a Quarantia was introduced at Florence, it was a mere temporary criminal commission to ensure the condemnation of the overmighty subject. Savonarola's political program might now seem complete, but he well knew that the Constitution was not perfect. He stated plainly that time would show the defects and make them good. The essential was to establish the local popular base at once. Even this, he came to see, might need amendment. In a remarkable sermon, preached in 1497, he hinted that the Grand Council itself might need a purge. He had to learn that there was no panacea for the inherited hysteria of a state. Not entirely without reason, the hostile chronicler Valienti wrote that little reliance could be placed in what the Commune of Florence did, since what was done today was undone tomorrow, that truly Dante had said, Quante volte nel tempo che remembre, legge, moneta, ed ufficio, e costume, hai tu mutato, e rinnovato membre. End of section 17. Recording by Linda Johnson.